From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. They made history this spring as the first team of black climbers to summit the world's highest peak. Mount Everest was never really on my radar or something that I thought I would have the ability to climb or the opportunity to get to, but I'm glad we did. For one Colorado teacher, it wasn't just about reaching the top. If you have a goal, you know, do it whatever you can to chase it and to, to do it. Like it doesn't have to be climbing a mountain. For some of my kids, it's going to college, you know. The team's leader says his goal is to get more people of color to to try it out. We get emails and comments every day, every week, that people who are inspired to get out and climb. We'll also hear about how climate change is affected not just when climbers summit the mountain, but also the climb itself. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give at CPR.org. Click on Support CPR. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. Thousands of people have summited Mount Everest, but until recently, only about a dozen of those climbers were black. That number went up by seven last month when members of the first all-black team to attempt the world's highest peak stood on its summit. One of those climbers is Eddie Taylor. He's a high school teacher in Lafayette, Colorado. Hi, Eddie. Hi, Andrea. The expedition was organized and led by Philip Henderson of Cortez. Welcome back, Phil. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Eddie, what did it feel like to stand on top of Mount Everest? Um, it, it felt amazing. It was a really cool journey. It felt really cool to finally have gotten there, but also at the same time, you kind of feel that need to get down as soon as possible because the summit's only halfway. So although it was really cool to get up there, it was, you know, you still had that that thought in the back of your head, okay, I've made it, now I need to go back down. Because it's one thing to get up, and it's a whole nother thing to get down. Yeah, exactly. How did you feel about your condition and preparation for the climb? Um, I mean, once we got there, I felt amazing for the most part. Like, the climbing went smoothly, the training and the years of experience had paid off, and really, like, once we landed in Nepal, a lot of that stress of planning the expedition and just trying to figure out how we could get there kind of disappeared. Did you always think you'd climb Mount Everest? No. Um, Mount Everest was never really on my radar or something that I thought I would have the ability to climb or the opportunity to get to, but I'm glad we did. When did you start thinking you'd do it? Um, a little after I met Phil Henderson, the expedition leader. Um, he was telling me about this trip we he had put together, and I still initially thought it was something that wasn't really a possibility for me. But after meeting him and going down this road of starting to plan the expedition, and really almost till the first of the year when it actually came together, uh, wasn't sure if it was going to be a thing. Was there something that Phil said that changed your mind? 
Um, I mean, he just, we just talked about our experience in the outdoors and he told me about like his experience over the past 30 years and he had been to Everest once and what a trip like this could mean to the future of mountaineering. And I think that that was kind of, you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a quick one word or one line thing that made me do, decide to do it, but it was kind of a process of just getting to know each other and learning more. Phil, you're the one who had the vision for this climb. You recruited Eddie and other climbers. You didn't summit. Why didn't you go to the top? You know, I there was a lot of logistics. Um, you know, even from the front end, we had uh, a few of our wives hiked in and some other folks had hiked in with us. So we had a large group. Logistics of, of Everest are, you know, there's a lot of things that happen behind the scenes that people don't see. And I felt like, you know, if if I was able to focus on those and it gave really the team a better chance because then they could just focus on climbing. And so um, really that was the, the big part of it was, was so many logistics. And then, you know, we had some folks that hiked in from Central Wyoming College. Uh, they were working in, with some scientists and so on doing some tech research with weather. And so we had to support them as well. And then, you know, being able to support the, you know, few little things that happen on the mountain, you know, from base camp. So there was a lot of logistic things, and I just felt like I was better leading from behind. So It was your second trip to Everest without summiting. Is that hard not to get to summit the mountain? No, you know, it, it's not hard not to get to summit. It's hard to not get to climb more, you know. Um, I was really looking forward to climbing with the team this time, but Summit doesn't really matter. What really matters is that, you know, we all come home, you know, safe and, and, uh, and we have a, a good expedition and, and learn from it and have fun doing it. So that's really the goal for me. And the summit is just a part of that. So it doesn't bother me not one bit. You know. You've been climbing and leading wilderness expeditions for a very long time. The last time you were on Colorado Matters, you spoke about working in a field without a lot of people of color. Did it feel different to be with a team of all black climbers? Oh yeah, for sure. It, it felt different. It just you know brings a different vibe, you know, into into our camp. Even some of the conversations that happen, or or just music that we're listening to at some point in time, or even just a, a comment that someone makes that um, you know is 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 cultural. You know what I mean? And so. Yeah, it definitely feels different, but it doesn't mean that, um, you know, we we also had our Sherpa team that, you know, brought their culture into our camp as well. And so it really was uh, more than just that in, in terms of it's just different than any other expedition or, or time that I've been in Nepal as, as well. Eddie, I understand there was a day or two when you thought you might not make it to the summit. This was during what you call rotations. What are those? Um, yeah, so you can't just hike to Everest and then go to the summit. Uh, you would get altitude sickness. And so what you do is you go a little bit up the mountain and then you go back down and then you go a little bit higher up the mountain and you go back down. Um, and you do that multiple times. We, we only did one rotation on the mountain and one rotation on another peak, but some, some expeditions do four or five rotations. It just depends before the summit window. And so during our rotation on the mountain, I just felt, I just had a, hard time sleeping. And there's a couple of reasons for that, that made me have a hard time eating. And then I had no appetite for some days. But as soon as I went down to base camp, I started feeling a lot better and had no issues on the summit push. 
Did you ever think you might not make it and be able to climb on the day of the summit? Um, not on the day of the summit. Honestly, like when we started going up on that push, like everyone was feeling good. Everyone was vibing really well. Um, we had oxygen at that point and things were just super smooth. Like it's, it's kind of crazy how well everything worked on that actual summit day. Take us to the mountain on summit day. We hear a lot about crowds. How crowded was it? So on summit day, when I left my tent, there was about 200 climbers in front of me. Um, so it, it was crowded. It, there's kind of no getting getting around it. It was crowded, but I mean, at the same time, I think, uh, I don't know the summit success rate of that day, but a large percentage of people did make it to the summit. Our entire team made it to the summit. Um, everyone got down safely and, you know, yeah, it was a lot of people, but all those people got to experience the mountain, which I think is something that is important, you know. Phil, you were further down um, the mountain. How did you find out that your group had reached the top? Uh, via radio. So we, we can talk to folks high up on the mountain from base camp. And so, you know, during that evening, uh, you know, I'm monitoring the radio um, basically from about the time they left at, you know, 8 o'clock, um, 9 o'clock in the evening and, and listening for a call and, and trying to figure what, what's going on. And I think about one about one one thirty somewhere around there I got a call that Manoa had somebody which which helped me sleep better for two reasons. One and knowing that he had somebody, but two, knowing that when the call came through I'd hear it loud and clear. And so now I could actually uh sleep better in between times. But then again I couldn't sleep because uh, I knew there were still six other folks out on the mountain. And uh, well, and, and Manoa was still out as well. He had just reached the summit. So at that point, you know, again, it just becomes uh, a waiting game. But, you know, within a few hours, it was, you know, in a few hours, maybe 10 hours, you know, later, um, everyone had summited, which was incredible for our team. You mentioned Manoa Anu'u from Montana. And Phil, you were on Everest in 2012. How has the mountain changed over that time? Well, um, you know, that's probably the thing that I noticed more than anything, and I probably talk about more than anything, in that, you know, the, the weather has changed. It's definitely warmer. The glacier has definitely melted out. There's just more brown surface um, on the ground in base camp, which means that there's just less snow and then less ice that's exposed. Uh, it's been exposed to rock, and so it's melting out pretty fast and you can you can see it i've seen it you know a 10-year difference is what i'm looking at and that's what i noticed more than anything and then just the warm temperatures it was warmer a lot earlier in the season uh, this year i mean we summited you know the 12th of may where 10 years ago you know the, the norm really is about the 20th of may and so seeing the running water that we see this time of the year this year, 2022, compared to 2012, was a huge difference. Does that make summiting harder or easier? I don't think it's uh, it's a matter of making summiting harder or easier, but it makes uh, uh, conditions on the mountain more difficult and, the, and managing the risk more difficult because you have warmer weather, which means... Um, you have more of a, a risk of avalanche and ice fall. Uh, but on the other side of that, 
you also have running water. And so the Sherpa teams and folks may not have to work as hard to go get water, you know, to go get ice to melt water. Um, they have it right in camp, but that's definitely a sign of, you know, riskier climate conditions, but also global warming at the same time. Phil, as we said, the expedition was your idea. I'm going to play back what you told us back in October when we first interviewed you about this expedition. Here's what you said about your mission. Sometimes what's missing in terms of our culture and those kind of things is even just a voice, just a familiar voice that sounds like your mother or your father or someone who looks like you. That can be a comforting thing when when the chips are down, when the weather's bad, and you could have a conversation with someone that resonates with you in your lifetime that puts you over that edge. When you don't have that opportunity, or maybe that's one of those times where someone says something that's what we call, quote unquote, a microaggression, and then that just sends you downhill. So there's a lot of reasons to increase the representation. I think the reason why there is the lack of it is because our stories haven't been told. This expedition changed that narrative and perhaps lured other Black climbers to try these kinds of feats. I mean, maybe not to you all, but I mean to us. And we, you know, we get, you know, emails and comments every day, every week that of people who are inspired to get out and climb. And it's not even, again, it's not even on the on an ever scale. You know, it could be on any scale. We we get comments and, and requests all the time from people who you know, are just inspired to get out in time. And I think, again, a part of that is showing that we can get out as groups of people and do things at a very high level and we can do it right along with anyone else. And, and you know, the, the thing about, you know, even just having a familiar voice or conversation, that does make a difference. Eddie, are you going to go back to Everest at some point? Um. I don't have any plans on it right now. I mean, there's there's so many other mountains and so many places in the world to explore. And I mean, that was one of my highlights of this trip was, you know, getting to meet a new culture and explore a new place. So at this point, I don't have any plans, but I'm not going to say that it's a definite no. And you're a teacher. What do you tell students who are inspired but maybe aren't quite interested in a high-risk climb like Everest? Um, Kind of going back to what I just said, I mean, I've I tell students if they ever get an opportunity to visit that part of the world, like you don't have to be a world-class climber to go hiking in the Kumbu or to even trek to base camp. Um, there's just, there's so much that you can learn from the culture there. And like, it's just something that's for you and something that you can do if you ever get that opportunity to, or you decide you want to take a trip there. So that's one thing that I tell them. And, um, and then I also just say like, if you have a goal, you know, do it, whatever you can to chase it and do to do it. Like it doesn't have to be climbing a mountain for some of my kids it's going to college, you know? Um, but it's like trying to set that example of like setting a goal and following it. Thanks so much to you both. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Philip Henderson of Cortez was the leader of Full Circle Everest. It was the first all-black team to climb the world's highest mountain. Eddie Taylor was on that expedition and made it to the summit. He's a science teacher and coach at Centaurus High School in Lafayette. When we come back, using genetic testing to take the guesswork out of medication. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Ballots are out for this year's primary election in Colorado, and nearly everyone gets to participate. Republicans, Democrats, unaffiliated. Who's running? What are the issues? How do you cast your vote? 
I'm Megan Verlee from the CPR Newsroom. Find out what you need to know to fill out your ballot online at CPR.org. And on Tuesday, June 28th, hear full coverage of the primary here on CPR News and on the Colorado Public Radio app. Imagine one day a person diagnosed with high blood pressure could know, based on their genetics, what medication might work best for them. That's the theory behind pharmacogenomics, and the hope is that it can remove some of the trial and error when treating patients. Samit Shah has released an educational book he co-wrote on the subject. Shah is a professor and dean at the Regis University School of Pharmacy in Denver. We spoke in January. Can you give me an example of a scenario where you can use genetics to determine if a certain drug would benefit a patient? I I could give my own example. So um, I'm a poor metabolizer for a drug called um, Plavix or Clopidogrel. So Clopidogrel is an antiplatelet agent, and we use that after heart disease or circulatory disorders to prevent another stroke or major heart disease. And Plavix is what we call a prodrug. And so when it's taken by us, it's inactive and it needs to be converted into its active form for it to have activity. Turns out 30% of the population does not make the protein or makes a slightly different version of a protein. And so they are not able to activate this drug. There are other drugs available that would be a better choice for these individuals. So we could be using a different drug uh, instead of clopidogrel in these cases. Uh, another example could be codeine, for example. So codeine is a prodrug. It gets a lot of its analgesic effects, its adverse effects from being converted into morphine. Some individuals carry a gene that makes a lot more morphine than others. So there are case reports where a two-year-old is given codeine after a tonsillectomy at a dose that it's typically given at, and and there's a tragic death because of respiratory depression, or a mother who is nursing and has a newborn, the baby passes away, the newborn passes away. In both of these cases, they were making a lot more morphine than what a typical individual would have made. So in all of these cases, by using genetic testing, we can determine if a different drug would be better for them, or if we should adjust the dose of the drug. So in the case of codeine, you would give them less. Um, And I understand there are some antidepressants where you can test a person to see how effective the drugs would be. I imagine this would be hugely beneficial to people as well. Yeah. So there are around 270 uh, drugs where the label now has some sort of pharmacogenetic information. And for 50 or so of those, we have really strong evidence that we should be using this genetic information. So in the case of antidepressants, for example, a major class of drugs that's used is the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. So these would be drugs such as Zoloft or Lexapro. Again, what happens is after we take a drug, a protein is then able to metabolize these drugs and remove it from the body. And in certain individuals, either they could be making a version of the protein that is very active and so really removes the drug very quickly from the body where it's not building up to therapeutic levels where it would have an effect. And so another drug class might be better suited in these individuals, or they might have a version of the drug where, or a version of the protein where it is 
not metabolizing the drug. And so very high levels of the drug are building up in the system. And in these cases, we might want to either reduce the dose of the drug or use uh, another drug class. Um, again, similar for some tricyclic uh, antidepressants such as amitriptyline, where the same sort of thing occurs. So again, reducing some of the trial and error. And explain why this field, I believe some also call it precision medicine, is particularly relevant right now. So what happened in 2000 was we had the first human genome sequenced. It cost hundreds of millions of dollars to sequence that first genome. But then the rate at which we have been able to sequence genomes has just both the price has come down dramatically and our efficiency and the rate at which we can do it has gone up. And so now instead of hundreds of millions of dollars, it costs less than $1,000 to sequence an entire genome. What this has done is two things. One, for commercial applications, it's now pretty inexpensive to be able to do this. Two, it has really accelerated the research in the field where we are continuing to find more and more of these relationships between genes and how they are affecting certain drugs. And as we get both more of this information and uh, where it has become much more inexpensive to do this testing, we are now able to use this technology. So a lot of uh, payers, insurance, um, Medicare, uh, they are starting to see the value of using this and the decreasing drug costs. And, and so uh, they are starting to cover it. Uh, we are starting to see some private payers, uh, private insurance companies cover for it. And, and that's why we are seeing a big increase in testing. How many hospitals and doctors, though, are consistently using this testing for choosing drugs for patients? Right now, it is being led by a number of major health systems across the country. So the University of Florida, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, Mayo Clinic, St. Jude's Children's Hospital. So all of these are doing it on a very comprehensive basis. Uh, there are pockets of places other than that which are starting to implement this. But there's a lot of talk across health systems now. And um, I think we should start seeing more and more of this being implemented, both in health systems and also at pharmacies, and other health clinics around us. What about ethical issues around this? Doing genetic testing can reveal a lot about a person's health. How do you keep all that information private? Yeah, so a law was passed in 2008 called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, and it prohibits employers from using genetic information against hiring or firing decisions, and also prohibits health insurance companies from using this information to deny coverage. However, I think there are still some challenges remaining in the field. For example, it does not cover life insurance or long-term care, and so we need to address some of these issues. Uh, there's also this issue of incidental findings. You know, Would a patient like to get some additional information we might discover as we do this testing? Or would they like to share information about this genetic condition because it could be shared by other members of the family? So just issues of, of that nature. Dr. Shah, thanks so much. Thank you. Samit Shah is a dean and professor at the Regis University School of Pharmacy in Denver. He co-wrote a textbook on pharmacogenomics. We spoke in January. When we come back, rethinking housing in Greeley and affordability is just one of the goals. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
Colorado's high elevation and dry climate make for good stargazing unless you're near a city that glows with light pollution, making it hard to see any but the brightest stars and planets. To view the Milky Way and other celestial bodies, head to fluorescent fossil beds or Dinosaur National Monument. These are among Colorado's international dark sky parks, joining communities like Silvercliff, Ridgeway, Westcliff, all of them distinguished by the deepness of their starry nights. A dark night benefits more than astronomers. Most living things depend on the daily cycle of light and dark to govern periods of activity and rest. And in humans, darkness triggers the release of the hormone melatonin, which encourages bodily recuperation. And as David White says in his poem, Sweet Darkness, the night will give you a horizon further than you can see. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio with support from Sheets and Giggles, a Colorado company. For decades, sprawl has characterized Greeley's growth, but now city leaders are encouraging something different, density, which they hope will help make housing more affordable. CPR's Nathaniel Miner checked it out. Just southwest of downtown Greeley is the Glenmere neighborhood, and it says a lot about the city's past, and maybe its future, too. I believe it probably started in the 1920s, and it had a variety of housing products uh, integrated from entry-level housing all the way up to where your local bankers lived or your mayor would live. Sherry Witt-Brown with the local Habitat for Humanity chapter is my tour guide. This neighborhood has modest little bungalows next to towering stately brick homes. Just a few blocks away are two and three-story apartment buildings. But most of Greeley doesn't look like this. After World War II, as Greeley and most American cities grew outward, they wanted new neighborhoods to look the same. Houses next to houses, apartments next to apartments. New rules had the effect of segregating people as well as housing types. Which is why Sherry Whit-Brown wants to see more new neighborhoods that look like Glenmere. This is my favorite part of the city because I, I feel if we can get back to this place of not segregating ourselves according to income levels, you know, not segregating ourselves according to color. So this concept, this beautiful community, was really something I think we should aspire to be today. City officials agree with that too. Last year, they overhauled the Greeley Development Code to allow for more housing variety. Now, it's much easier for developers to build duplexes next to townhomes, next to a small apartment building, next to a detached house. Greeley City Manager Raymond Lee says lot sizes can be smaller too. We want to make sure that we're using our land as wisely as possible uh, regarding that we're not wasting anything, but we're creating a sense of community for a lot of our residents and future residents. Lee hopes the new code will make it easier to build more housing near downtown and to re-energize the city's core. At the same time, ample water rights and available land mean the city will continue to sprawl outward. Lee says this new code will help shape that too. We have the land and we have the water for growth. Uh, but we want to be smart about it. We just don't want to build and continue to build and just use all those resources up. City officials also hope the code creates more for-sale options, like townhomes and duplexes, that are more attainable for current apartment dwellers. And that's a big deal. 
because Greeley is no longer the affordable bastion it once was. The median home price for a single-family home in Weld County is now over half a million dollars. The new code is helping out affordable home developers too, like local powerhouse Greeley Weld Habitat for Humanity. Sherry Witt Brown and I are at Greeley's southern edge, behind a Walmart. We can see Long's Peak in the distance to the west, and in front of us, a big empty field that will someday be full of Habitat for Humanity homes. This is what eventually will be Hope Springs, okay? And it, to me, already in my mind, I, I see the families, I see the soccer field built. You know, I've been in this business for so long that I already know what this is going to look like in 10 years. Because of the new code, more homes can now be built here, which means they'll be cheaper. This habitat development is modeled after an existing one, one town over in Evans, Colorado. Hi, Frankie. Come on in. How are you? Frankie Rodriguez is a single mom and has lived in apartments in Greeley for most of her life. This is her first house, five bedrooms for her family of six. The apartment I had a four bedroom, but the, um, it was really small, nothing compared to this. You know, we had like um, the hallways were like our storage. We had boxes everywhere because the rooms were so small, we didn't fit. But this is definitely really good. I love it. Rodriguez's house is next to townhomes in duplexes. They're modestly sized, and none of them have garages. But Rodriguez and some of her neighbors told me they never thought they'd be homeowners. And now, they are. I'm Nathaniel Miner, CPR News. And I'm Andrea Dukakis. You're with Colorado Matters on listener-supported CPR News and KRCC.